I'm Gemma Gracewood, and you're listening to The Letterboxd Show. We're bringing a rotating cast of Letterboxd regulars together to talk film and other things. This is The Letterboxd Show. I'm Gemma Gracewood, the editor of Letterboxd, and I'm coming to you from a studio that looks a lot like my wardrobe because I'm staying home to save lives. And I hope you are too, unless you're an essential worker, in which case, thank you. Beaming in for this episode from just outside London is our UK correspondent, film and music journalist, Ella Kemp. Hello. Hello. Thank you for having me. You're welcome. We're so grateful. And hunkered down in LA is Letterbox front page regular and musician and writer Demi Adejuibe. Hello. Hello. How are you? Uh, yep, 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 yep. That's the eternal question at the moment, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> well, look, I just wanted to start by telling you that the Letterbox team is healthy and well. We're keeping things ticking over, but we are craving human connection. So here we are, the Letterbox show, which... I'm seeing as sort of part film podcast and part apocalypse mental health check. So I want to check in with both of you. Demi, how are things where you are? I'm doing all right. Uh, I'm lucky that I live with someone and have like another person that I can talk to every day to keep me sane and have just things that I can do to take my mind off of the world. And Ella? Yeah, uh, pretty similar here. I'm, I live with my parents, and uh, so it's quite nice to have that company, especially with people who are interested and working in very, very different things to me. Uh, so, yeah, with, we're all healthy and staying pretty lively. It's a challenge, though, isn't it? A daily challenge. Definitely, yeah. So definitely uh, a very different set of circumstances that I think, you know, we're all adapting to in different ways. Yeah, right now I'm in New Zealand, which is more or less completely shut off from the rest of the world. The entire country is in a state of emergency. We're eight days in at the time of recording, and we're under a lockdown order. Things feel weird and scary, but also more or less under control. And there's a lot of emphasis from our leader, especially on the notion of being kind, of kindness, um, which I appreciate. But I'm finding the day-to-day is weird and hard. It's hard to get structure in the day and mm. and also to work out where film fits in which is yeah. know, so much of the day job for all of us yeah definitely i've i've found that there's been a few nights when i've i've started watching something or i've i've laid out some kind of film watching plan in my head at the start of the day and then i get round to it and i just think my brain is not handling this in the way that it normally does and i just have to completely like reroute that plan because it, some days it just it just doesn't happen um attention span has been a very different thing to juggle I feel how are you coping with that what's your what have you been watching uh well I've I've turned to short films <laughs> in quite a, a big way um which is is pretty new for me uh I've I've never really kind of given the time as much to watch as many short films but um I got so Disney plus launched in the UK on March 24th so uh, I joined that because there was just a couple of titles I wanted to watch and uh, I very quickly got very intensely into all the short films on there because you know they've they've got they've got like all of the original uh, Walt Disney ones so they've got everything from Steamboat Willie to all of the Pixar shorts being made now and so that's been great 
uh, my favourite so far is Kitbull, which was uh, nominated for an Oscar last year. Oh, perfect. I need to add that to the list I'm watching with my four-year-old, which is, uh, which is my movie viewing context at the moment. I'm juggling work with <laughs> <laughs> parenting this four-year-old. And in some ways, it's actually really delightful to go from writing one minute to playing with Duplo the next. But, you know, it's the same thing. I'm finding it hard to focus. And I've managed to get through, I think, one feature-length film in a single sitting in the, in the past fortnight. Um, which one but was what it? I have, oh, um, I will reveal that soon. <laughs> <laughs> we got to keep the people listening. Sure. Um, yeah, but first, I, but, but one thing I have noticed is um, the notion of self-censorship at a time like this, which is kind of, it's an act of self-care, isn't it, to make deliberate choices about what you will and won't watch, mm. right. I suppose. So I've really been leaning on, you know, I've watched a lot of people, I guess, who have a bit more time on their hands, whether voluntarily or not, um, making plans to churn through, you know, a, a director's back catalogue. And I'm, I'm thinking, well, A, I don't have the time because I'm working in parenting, but B, I'm not in the mood for the serious stuff. Yeah. I mean, I, I did I did the Contagion rewatch. Did anyone else do the Contagion rewatch? I did. I, <laughs> I didn't, but I... I was like, I don't know that it would affect me the same way, but I did really like Contagion the first time I watched it. But I, I really wanted to rewatch uh, this Todd Berger movie, It's a Disaster, which is just about couples uh, being quarantined in their home during a, like, a poisonous outbreak of, of a contagious virus. And I was like, I don't, that might, that might not do it for me. <laughs> yeah. It's about self preservation, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think the thing about Contagion is, in a way, it was it was comforting because it's, you know, a, a lot of people have called it competence porn. And it is that thing where we, we get to see, you know, public health officials doing what they do best, which, you know, which they're also doing right now. So, you know, even though Gwyneth Paltrow uh, in the first 15 minutes dies and, you know, the most horrendous foaming at the mouth way. So, um, despite all our efforts, she failed to respond. Okay. And her heart stopped. And right. Unfortunately, she did die. Right. I'm sorry, Mr. Hamal. I know this is hard to accept. Okay. Can I go talk to her? Sorry, spoilers. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and there is a sort of dystopian, um, you know, looting violence kind of, you know, thing that rises up because presumably it's a society that hasn't been through this before. I did find it comforting in some ways to, to see portrayed the, you know, the real people who are going to help us get out of this mess. Right. Yeah. And they do get out of it. Most of them. To my really? recollection, yeah. that movie ends in a way where you're like, okay, things will be okay. Yeah. Yeah. There's a vaccine. Yeah. There's a vaccine, but there's a lot of mass graves. And so it is sobering. But you know, the other interesting thing that happened is that my son has been self-censoring. So last week we asked a group of Pixar directors, you know, amazing people like Andrew Stanton and Angus McLean and Domi Shi to give us their personal recommendations for films that are great to watch with kids because families are craving, you know, well-recommended films right now. 
And um, although in the 12s and over list, there are things like Hitchcock, you know, it's the so birds intense. and rear window. Yeah, I saw The it's Shining so... and I was like, really? Uh, a movie yeah. about a man going stir crazy inside of a single place? I don't know. Oh, my God. <laughs> but, you know, some teens can handle these things more than others. Yeah. And But I, I was looking over the lists and I thought, uh, okay, maybe it's time to introduce my son to the OG Star Wars because he's four and he's got a blue lightsaber mm-hmm. and he's always wondered, you know, what it is and where it comes from. So we sat down one afternoon to watch the 1977 Star Wars and we got 33 minutes in and he just said very bluntly, we have to turn it off. It has guns in it. Oh, wow. Oh. And I, yeah. And I just sort of suddenly felt extremely aware of the, of the self-censoring that comes at a time like this in, in your entertainment yeah. choices. So the two, the film I managed to watch all the way through, da, 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 da. Well, and I'm afraid and embarrassed to say this was my first time, and it was my son's first time, but it turns out that it wasn't my 72-year-old mother's first time, <laughs> and it wasn't even her 30th time. My mother has seen My Neighbor Totoro more than any other member of wow. the family, because she has oh nine grandchildren. Oh, right. That makes sense. <laughs> it makes I, sense. <laughs> I own that movie, and I've never watched it, and maybe now's the time oh it's so wow it's so lovely and oh just i don't know it's just one of those titles that i think at least for me just it just makes you feel warm and i think like when i start watching it um i there's no sense like i don't get nervous that the film is going to go in a place that i'm not going to be happy with just throughout it's like it feels like it's being made like just for you watching it being like I'm just here to make you feel nice. And it's just lovely. And more than that, there's a, you know, you haven't seen it, Demi, so I don't want to get into any spoilers, but there are, at a time like this, there is a, an element to it about physical distancing and family that just, there was a moment where I looked over my son's head at my mother and we both had tears in our eyes and we both just sort of nodded stoically <laughs> at each other. <laughs> and um, it just, it felt... You know, everything you say, Ella, and on top of that, it felt like a film for our times. Demi, you got to get in there. I got to. <laughs> what yeah. have you been watching? Uh, I have, it's been hard for me to watch things too, but I feel like it's always a little hard for me to watch things, which is why I just tend to watch a lot of new movies and go to the theaters where I just feel like I have this, uh, un, like this perfectly focused element uh, or the perfectly focused area where I don't have any distractions or the sense that I need to do something else. So the only time I've been able to watch movies throughout this is when uh, my friends and I will do like a Netflix party and uh, watch a synced up movie. So it's just been a lot of whatever's on Netflix. We watched Burlesque the other day. Uh, we watched The Adventures of Tintin. Uh, we've decided that we're going to try and do a watch through of the all the Spielberg movies we haven't seen uh, that are available for us to stream, which will be hard, but we just spent like an hour just going, oh, he's so good. Every movie he does. And we're like, all right, let's <laughs> the filmography of what we can because we're not going to watch like Amistad or whatever right mm-hmm. now. <laughs> <laughs> no, but so what, what's on the list that you haven't seen? I'm so uh, curious. My list is embarrassing because I have not seen Saving Private Ryan. Neither have I. Uh, <laughs> well, I'm glad I'm not alone here. It, it's one of those movies that it's like so – of like the culture that I've seen a lot of the parts of it and know a lot about it. But so I'm sure I'll watch it and be like, yeah, it's just exactly what they say. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, some of my friends haven't seen catch me if you can or hook. And I'm excited to introduce them to those. Mm-hmm. 
but yeah, just there's so many good things that are the the perfect tone for us to stream like with friends right now. Yeah. We watched Tootsie the other day, which I have always oh. been a bit like cautious about being like, oh, I don't know if I want to watch a movie about a man dressing like a woman that was made in the eighties, but it holds up surprisingly well for most of the part. And I really enjoyed it. It's not quite the problematic fave, is it, that you think it's going to be no. in 2020? Yeah, I was I was shocked that it wasn't worse. <laughs> <laughs> for the past two weeks on Letterboxd, we've been running a showdown, you know, looking for your favorite feel-good movies. And I am delighted and totally not surprised to be able to announce to you two that 48 hours from the final calculations, because uh, we're recording this before we reveal... It's going to be impossible for any other movie to beat Paddington yes. 2. Yep. I suppose you know who I am. Oh, yes. You're a very famous actor. Oh, Pooh. <laughs> or used to be. Now you do dog food commercials. <laughs> that makes sense. That's correct. That's correct. I wanted to get your reactions to that. And maybe could we talk a little about the bear and what it is about Paddington, and, and particularly Paddington 2, I think, that ah uh, this... This, you know, the letterbox community have just wrapped their arms around the little guy. <laughs> I actually watched Paddington 2 before the first one. And uh, I was interning uh, for Little White Lies at the time. And the, the new film was coming out in cinemas. And, and the editors, uh, David Jenkins and Adam Woodward, they said, oh, you know, we should go and see this this weekend. And I thought... I don't know about this. Like, this isn't for me. You know, I will respect it, and but I will give it to, like, my niece and these smaller children. Um, and obviously I was proven wrong. And it's, like, one of the greatest and loveliest films uh, that I have ever seen. And then watched the first one after that. And I, I liked the first one. What's your name? Hmm? Do bears even have names? Mm, of course we do. My name is... <laughs> beg your pardon? Yeah. Right. But I still think that, I don't know, it just feels like all of the ingredients that were good in the first film just got refined and, like, mixed up a little more and just, it's just even better, the second one. I, I don't even... It's the Empire Strikes Back thing. It's, it's just unbelievable. It makes me so happy. Um... And just like in a calm way, not even in a kind of overexcited, um, which I know I might sound now, but like, it's just so reliable. Um, Oh, it's just great. I had the same exact experience. I went and saw Paddington 2 with some friends. uh, And then that night I went home and watched Paddington on Netflix. And the very (laughs) next day, a friend of mine was like, hey, have you seen Paddington 2? And I was like, yes, but I'd go again. She's like, cool, because this is my third time. So let's go. (laughs) And so I saw it twice in the span of 24 hours. And I was like, yeah, this is an incredible film. And I don't know what it is about that movie that makes it. It's like Paddington 1 is good. I'd say even great. And then something about Paddington 2 is just like they perfected the formula. It feels like... They just, I don't, I don't know what it is about the character of Paddington that he's just this like sweet, perfectly wholesome. He doesn't see villains. He's just like going about his world in this, he's like a kindly Mr. Magoo, but a child. (laughs) It's just so lovable and like, 
I don't know. It's like a Charlie Chaplin style thing for kids, but then also perfectly written in this way that everything that is set up in the beginning comes back in a satisfying way and you feel sad at points and then just uplifted. It's all just lovely. Yeah. Yeah. I love that. There's, there's just so many um, mirror images with the Aunt Lucy and Mrs. Brown right. both having opportunities to save Paddington at certain points. And, you know, those are some tear-inducing moments. But also I think... I, and I put them on an equal level. I, Paddington 2 is not higher than Paddington for me. I think Paddington in many ways is more perfect in a way because it's, it's sort of somewhat shorter. But Paddington 2, yeah, yeah it is the Empire Strikes Back thing, isn't it? It's, in Paddington 1 we get Nicole Kidman as the villain was perfect and something that felt entirely natural. Truly. Paddington 2, Hugh Grant as the villain was something so new. Astonishing. 100%, hands down, one of the best performances that actor has ever done in his life. And and I, I, I want to make a comparison with Once Upon a Time in Hollywood here with Leonardo yeah, DiCaprio. Um, you know, and it's watching these, <laughs> thank you, watching these two actors who are both at the top of their game relishing the opportunity to play all of these other parts within the same story and, you know, just watching what they bring to each of those roles. You know, the fact that we get to see Hugh Grant be so many other things and just obviously having the time of his life at this time of his life. So much fun. And I think also because he's he's such a comfort film in and Mm -hmm. of himself, isn't he? You know, with Notting Hill and Love Actually and Do you want to know something Four Weddings and a Funeral? I want to know anything. (laughs) This was right now. I'm in isolation. (laughs) Tell me This was the first Hugh Grant movie I ever saw. (gasps) Yeah. What? Let's take a quick intermission. We're going to hear from some Letterbox members out there in the world who have left us voice messages telling us the comfort films that they've been enjoying in lockdown. The comfort films that I'm watching now is 2012, and I know that's a bad movie, but I mean, there's something special to watching John Cusack for like two hours and 30 minutes straight, and it's like, I don't know. And I'm also watching um, mid-90s just because it's Jonah Hill's first movie, and I really loved it. There's a feeling to it. Uh, I'm also watching House because it's just something very special and unique that not many movies do, where it's just straight up very over the top. There's something special to it. Hey, this is Letterboxd user Jeej. Um, I've been rewatching Once, directed by John Carney. It's been my favorite film for almost 10 years. And every time I watch it, I think, uh, maybe this time I'll like it less. Because, you know, how some films some films grow on you and other films you just like less over time. But uh, with Once, I like it more every time I watch it. Um, it's an extremely low-budget film, um, way more low-budget than John Carney's later musical films like Sing Street and Begin Again. But that's why I like it. Um, I especially like that Glenn Hansard and Marquette Erglova, the leads, um, are not actors. They're just musicians um, hanging out. Uh, with excellent chemistry. And I just think it's a really lovely, warm, fuzzy film, and I recommend it to anybody self-quarantining. You're listening to The Letterboxd Show. I'm Gemma Gracewood, and also with me are Ella Kemp in London and Demi Adejwebe in Los Angeles. Can you say that one more time? (laughs) Paddington 2 was the first Hugh Grant movie I ever saw. He was, for a long time, with Nicole Kidman even, although I got that cleared up before but like there were a list of actors where it's like you would be shocked to learn i'd never seen a movie featuring these people and hugh grant was on it up until paddington too 
And and have you watched other Hugh Grant? What if, well, I don't think I have. Did you see the gentleman? Oh, I did. Okay, yeah, I saw the gentleman. Oh, I... <laughs> yeah, which is which is not, yeah, great not a great Hugh Grant second. and Colin, Colin Farrell yes. are great. I want to take I want to take Colin Farrell and Hugh Grant from the gentleman and put them in the yeah, together. That'd be nice together. Oh, Colin Farrell <laughs> as the villain in Paddington Three would be great. Oh, I'd love oh, to see that. Would be so great. Although we did interview Paul King about that, and um, he thought Javier Bardem oh, would yeah. be quite okay. a good. Yeah, really good. <laughs> Playing <laughs> Anton Sugar. <laughs> oh my god! <laughs> yes. So you went into Paddington Two, not seeing Hugh Grant in the same way that those of us who have watched him in all those rom well, films. We're seeing him. So not seeing him come undone in a... I feel like I still did because he's one of those actors where his public profile and like the characters that he plays are so well known that I I have a sense of who he's been. So I was also like, oh, he's having so much fun here. And I was like, I can tell this isn't like the guy in Notting Hill or even music and lyrics or whatever. But I was just... I guess it wasn't the same for me because I didn't have that experience of watching him be those things and have a feeling of who he was before besides just going... I know what people think of him. I know his public persona. I have a lot of friends who love Hugh Grant and are mad that I've now told the world <laughs> that they couldn't convince me to watch a Hugh Grant movie before this. One of the other things I think makes the makes the Paddington movies such a success is the sheer attention to detail in the production design and in the um, and in the set design Absolutely. and the props and you know the art department. You know every newspaper they pick up, every single one of the stories in those newspapers has been written for that film and for that wow. particular day of of that bear's life, you know? I think it's really interesting. And I also, there's another couple of things which I'm constantly surprised that Paul King, the director and writer, and Simon Farnaby, who plays the security guard, who co-wrote Paddington 2, never sort of cop to in interviews, but clearly there are some really well-considered socio-political themes going oh, on. Oh, absolutely. Mm-hmm. You know, about... About immigration, about um, the incarceration system and, you know, about seeing prisoners as humans, about, you know, women and work, about, you know, just so many, so many different things, right? And I think that's part of what makes it work. So yeah, well and the way level. it shows kind of very uh, British, prickly, domestic culture and the way all the neighbours kind of just ever so slightly peep out at each other and need to be prompted by another person to be kind before they will you know engage in any form of social interaction whatsoever it's just like all of these tiny details that you watch it and it's like you are at once a national treasure and are making me feel very guilty about like everything I do in this country I live in at the same time Well, I just want to thank you both for indulging me and getting oh, to talk always. about Paddington. Oh, is this not the Paddington cast? <laughs> Basically, we could just keep doing this. Um, what we are going to do is have a um, synchronized global watch along uh, at a date to be announced. So keep an eye on our social mm-hmm. media and website for that. And I'm excited. Absolutely. I hope you'll both be there. I just want to tell you some other cool things that have been happening on Letterboxd in the past week because it's... It's sort of tricky to know what to do at times like this, and we're very aware at HQ that we are an essential service to film lovers, really, in in the home. So we've reached out to a few friends of Letterboxd to get a few resources to help us through this time. So Edgar Wright came through with a hundred of his favourite comedies. 
he has more, but he mm-hmm. limited it to a hundred. And there's everything from Chaplin and Keaton to Young Frankenstein and Pee Wee's Big Adventure and the great Shaolin <laughs> Soccer, which is very, very cool. He then tagged Ryan Johnson in, who gave us an unexpectedly great list of 70s movie <laughs> musicals, which is just, I mean, so good. Jesus Christ, superstar. And then there was this other amazing exercise that the Brightwall Dark Room gang did. So it was totally fun and really interesting. They crowdsourced a list of the most obscure good movie recommendations. So what they did, and you can do this at home for those listening along, is you can go to your own profile, go to your diary, sort by popularity, and then go to the last page. And then look for the film on that page that you have rated the highest. And that is your film that you love the most that few other people had seen. So did you look up your most obscure good movies? Yes, and, I did. And what were they? Um, so the movie that I liked the most on my last page was a Belgian film called Angel. Um, it's a romance based on a novel. And uh, I saw it at the Toronto Film Festival in, in 2018. And... It was the first year that I was attending the festival and I remember at the time thinking, you know, this film is amazing. I can't wait for everyone else to see it and everyone else to agree with me. Um, and I mean, obviously that's not the, that I'd learned quickly. That's not the way that festival works. Um, so yeah, so even now I don't really know uh, anyone else uh, who has seen it. Um, but yeah, I, I loved it. Uh, I think it's, it's so beautifully shot. It's like very immersive and bewitching and really well acted. Um, so yeah, that would be my pick. My uh, film diary is a little bit skewed because I have so many comedy specials logged in there as well. But uh, funny enough, <laughs> one of my favorite movies that uh, has not been seen is probably something that's been seen in a specific part of the world, but it is the Antipodean 1997 classic, The Castle. Oh, what yeah. is that? Which, now oh. we are talking. Oh, Ella, sorry, Ella how have you not seen The Castle? <laughs> so sorry. Demi, this is amazing. It's so it's so gratifying to hear an American. Uh, well, I wouldn't have had I wouldn't have watched it if it weren't for a Kiwi. So big ups to her. So I, right. I, I mean, it's just a lovely film about uh, an Australian family that lives by an airfield and really wants to keep their home. And it's like. It's very silly, and there are some parts where you're just like, what's going on here? But also, the father is one of the most sweet, lovable characters I've ever seen. Definitely, like, the best dad I think I've seen in any film. And I just, I think about him all the time and just how much he loves his family and the life he has and just how comforting it is to have a movie like that where a good, like, half of the movie is no plot. And then you're like, oh, right, you gotta, yeah, you gotta do stuff. And it's still just, like, just a lovely yeah. comfort watch. We live and breathe the castle I know. in our part of the world. Uh, it's, it is very, very normal to quote, you know, to quote the castle at each other. What's this? It's chicken. It's going straight to the pool room. Yeah, but what's on it? <laughs> yeah, it's going straight to the pool room. Dale dug a hole. But also, what's the other great line? It's the vibe. It's the vibe of the thing. It's Mabo. It's the treaty. I love saying the how's vibe. the serenity. This is one of every time and especially now. And it also sits... In a group of movies alongside, I think, Paddington and another Australian classic, Baz Luhrmann's first film. Strictly um, Ballroom? Uh, um, yeah. Um, Strictly Ballroom, yeah, which is, which is one of the best as well, where you get, you get a mix of characters who are larger than life, you know, clearly kind of caricatures written for the film, who rub up against 
very ordinary, you know, almost real life people. So in, in the castle, for example, it's the, it's the QC who comes along to help the family with spoilers. And, um, you know, he is so not like the family. He's so not like any of the larger than life characters right. in the rest of the film. And it's the same in Paddington. You know, there's this bear, you know, an actual bear. And everybody's it's a just normal like, thing. Oh, yeah, there's a bear. A it's bear. It's great. What you know, talk it's just a normal like thing. Everyone <laughs> and cooks better than anyone in prison. Like, yeah. And that, I guess this kind of idea that normies yeah. and freaks could just rub along together. And if, if we're all kind and if we all um, consider each other's human rights, you know, the world will be right. And that's, I think that's what the castle does for me. Yeah, if you're kind and polite, the world will be right. Yeah. 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 Thanks, Paddington. Do you want to know mine? Yes. Okay, so this is weird, but the book I got given at Christmas because my sister loves me was um, Andrew Ridgely's memoir of his time in the pop band Wham, which was one of the greatest pop bands in pop history and uh, only lived for four years, mainly because, um, you know, their songs were written for the teenage lifestyle. And by the time they were about 23, 24, Mm. they were kind of getting too old to keep writing about what teenagers were into. But also, most significantly, because George Michael's talent was clearly supersized and needed another, you know, form to express itself in, which was essentially his solo career. Um, and he originally <laughs> comes across like Paddington in the book. He is, he is, just, he is just so happy to have mm. been a part of it and so happy to have elevated George into his solo career and just, you know, just so admiring and kind of, you know, just into his friend. It's really lovely. Um, it's a very light, it's a very quick read. You can read it in an afternoon. I read it twice. And anyway, there's a fascinating chapter in there about a trip that Wham took to China in the mid-80s, and they became the first Western pop band to make such a trip. And he kind of goes into the background of it and explains why it all happened. And they needed to make a splash on the world stage. So their managers came up with this wacky idea to take them to China and to take something like 35 members of the media along with them. And they also took the director, Lindsay Anderson from the UK, who was best known for those kind of black and white kitchen sink, bleak social realist dramas (laughs) like The Sporting Life. So why they thought that was a good idea, I don't know. But sure enough, he followed them around and he made this film. They watched the first cut and they went, oh, that is a <laughs> 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 um, <laughs> So they got someone to recut it um, so that you've got some awesome sequences like uh, locals in China doing kung fu uh, mm-hmm. along to young guns, go for it the great Wham rap, and released it as Wham in China, Foreign Skies. And it's, it's on YouTube. It's, it's right there for you to see. And it's the weirdest, most interesting, obscure rock doc that had the largest film premiere of any film in history because they showed it in Wembley Stadium before they came oh on stage God. for their final concert to 72,000 oh people. <laughs> So that is my wow. most obscure movie recommendation. And yeah, it's, it's just fascinating. And when you think about uh, globalization now and how, 
you know, air travel has sort of almost come to a halt in so many parts of the world. And one of the first industries to take the hit from what we're currently going through was music, live music, comedy, entertainment, you know, is hurting right now. It's, it's sort of even more fascinating in that context to, to go back and watch this first Western mm-hmm. pop band arrive in China. And they didn't get paid. They got offered um, because the, the Chinese government couldn't sort of pay them in money for some reason. So they offered to pay them in a thousand workers' bicycles. <laughs> but they, I know, but they couldn't work out how to get them sent back to the UK. So they don't. <laughs> anyway, I am full of, I am full of wham facts. So listen to my wham podcast starting next week. Cast Christmas. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, exactly. So Brightwall Darkroom's most obscure good movie recommendations list was an absolute banger, and I highly recommend checking out the link in the podcast descriptions. Um, have you have you two seen anything else happening across Letterboxd that you're enjoying? Um, mine was kind of a little bit further afield on the internet, but sort of thinking about um, the way a lot of people in the film community are you know, turning more to social media to do nice things for each other. Um, And the example that I've been enjoying quite a lot uh, is Sir Patrick Stewart uh, has been reading one Shakespeare sonnet every day for the past 12 days. Um, Mm. That's all. And he's been going in chronological order. Uh, so So he did one about, yeah, 10, 12 days ago. And I think... It got such a warm response that then he decided to go all the way back and was like, okay, sonnet number one. Um, so, yeah, so I'm currently waiting for the, for the reading of sonnet 13 um, to come out today. Sonnet 13. What was um, your favourite I mean, sonnet I so far? I have to catch up with uh, because I've kind of been saving them. His reading of sonnet number one uh, was quite interesting because... It was the second video he released, so you could kind of tell he had this like little bit of pride and confidence, thinking, "Oh, I'm doing you know a series for the people," and you could you could see a little glimmer in his eye of something, knowing that it was the start of something special. Um, so that's been a nice little thing to check in with. <laughs> I love that. I'm loving Sam Neil at the moment, who has long had daily musings on Twitter and Instagram, and you know introduced us to his farm animals who are named after famous friends. Sam Neill, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, non-binary people everywhere, is the <laughs> therapy we need right now. That's my opinion. He, so he hasn't been able to get home to his vineyard in New Zealand, so he's, he's isolating somewhere in Australia, and it's obviously bringing up all sorts of, of feelings and thoughts for him, and he's having quite amazing dreams that he's sharing. He's got his ukulele with him, so he's you know, happily butchering <laughs> songs by Radiohead and Randy Newman. But, I mean, just what's so lovely about it is that, you know, this is the man whose credits include things like Jurassic Park and Hunt for the Wilder People, Dead Calm, The Piano. He sort of tends to play roles that epitomise what we in New Zealand call the, the man alone, the sort of taciturn, dry, man-of-the-land character who, you know, most definitely doesn't do small talk. And what, Sam, what Sam's doing is small talk, um, but he's got this just lovely message about not being afraid and not being anxious and, you know, we'll probably be a bit tattered and torn at the end of it, but we'll get through it. And I just feel like I struggle to meditate, but yeah. Sam Neill is so the meditation nice. I need right now. It's beautiful. <laughs> Have a listen. 
when you were here before couldn't look you in the eyes you're just like an angel your skin makes me cry you float like a feather in a beautiful world I wish I was special you change word here you're so fucking special but I'm a creep I'm a widow what the hell am I doing here I don't belong here so this butchering another song you know just to encourage people to stay home and find something creative to do even if it means ruining a radio hit song I love radio hit so much and I love that song and it's for all the people like me that weren't in the first 15 and we weren't in the cheerleader squad we just wanted to be special um look i know so many of us are, are afraid and and anxious at the moment but don't be afraid don't be anxious we'll get through this thing we'll we'll probably be a bit tattered and torn at the end of it but we will get through and i know it's it's easy to spiral down into you know, what's the worst thing can happen? But I'm encouraging you to just spiral up and think, what's the best thing that can happen? What's going to happen at the end of this? We'll come out and the sky will be blue. And we'll love each other. And things will be fine. Demi, you're as much of a celebrity as Sam Neill and Sir Patrick Stewart. Do you want to tell us about what you've been doing over on Twitter? I had an insane idea that's already gotten out of hand that I would. uh, So I do a lot of sort of end credits songs for movies and pretend that they're real just by filming my TV and splicing them into the films. And I decided it would be fun to do a donation drive where I basically ask people to donate to a food bank uh, at least $10 or more and then send me the receipt. And I will choose one person who donates at random to tell me what movie they want me to make a song for. And I was like, okay, every thousand dollars that it passes, I'll do another movie and another song. And it's already gotten to like $8,000. So I'm just essentially writing an album for the quarantine. We'll see how that goes. That's so cool. Yeah. This is amazing. It is very, very cool. We will put a link to that in the description (laughs) for sure. Thank you for your kindness and service at this time. I've also also very much enjoyed... Whatever Richard E. Grant has been doing on Twitter lately, uh, it just every day—not every day—but he he just started posting uh, him doing quotes from With Nail and I, but then also just he does a lot of memes and videos, and it's just, just the most joyful thing because it just feels like he's a teenager on the internet. <laughs> I love him. I love him so yeah, much. Yeah, right. I mean, we were all already loving him. Oh, it was whole so Oscar journey from two years ago, yeah. and this just sort of. It was so exciting, and this just feels like a natural extension of that. I feel like he's, you know, I'm waiting for the Instagram live oh. where he and Barbara Streisand have, I mean, a, we've got, have an I, AMA. You know, I think realistically, <laughs> with the amount of time that we're looking ahead to in quarantine, I think it could happen. You know, the campaign should start now. We can, you know, what else are they Absolutely. doing? Absolutely. 
Yeah, and isn't it an interesting time for creators and and for people with somewhat of a profile because we are getting to see them and you know like like I was telling you before the podcast started I don't I don't know if you've been experiencing this but every meeting that I've been having that would normally be a phone call and very much not a video call suddenly you you know <laughs> you go to interview someone and there they are and I haven't had time to do my hair but it's the same with the with the members of our film community who have some profile and who are sharing themselves on social media in this way. They're not, mm-hmm. you know, not, they're not getting up to do their hair. They're just they're just pressing record and letting us in. Those who have the time and the inclination and the resources to do so, I should add, because this is also a really tricky time for for a lot of creatives who are out of work or you know who are writers who are struggling with with attention span like we were talking about at the beginning you know and I think it's really good to acknowledge the the pluses and minuses of what's going on here for creatives going all right I was out of work before this and now I'm just like okay so I'll be out of work for a little bit longer I'm lucky enough that I, I I'm not struggling financially right now and can sort of turn my time to doing something to help people who might be but I also think that uh I have a lot of friends who are out of work and then also live alone and are going to go stir crazy and don't know how their finances are going to be. And so many like touring comedians who can't do anything now. And it's just a lot of, a lot of people who are being hit by this in a weird way and are just trying to figure out how to keep themselves sane. Uh, And that's where my like sympathies lie right now, but I think I'm doing all right. Oh, that's good to hear. I mean, there's, there's a lot of things we can do from inside our houses, and especially as film lovers. I did want to draw everyone's attention to a list that we've just put up on the Letterbox Crew account, which is a way to support indie art house cinemas you know, from the comfort of your own home. It's called Art House Online, and it's, um, it's basically a list of films that are available outside of the normal streamers and you know, VOD platforms, and where the money goes directly to a local cinema that's partnering with the distributor, which is so awesome. And there are films like high-quality films like Baccarat and Then We Danced and mm-hmm. Vitalina Varela and Ken Loach's Sorry We Missed You, which are all available right now. So definitely, definitely want to put people's attention in that direction. Ella, I know you talked to yes, Levin Aiken, who's did. the director of And Then We Danced. He was just, he was a dream to interview. Uh, I think his film is so wonderful. Um, it's, it's just so warm and, and loving and there's just so much passion in it. And then him as a person, he's, he's so eloquent and, and passionate about, um, you know, the films that he loves and all the films that he's learned from as well. Uh, so, you know, it, whenever, whenever you get the chance to read him or hear him or anything at all, uh, it's just such a treat. Such a treat. Levin Aiken and his new film, And Then We Danced, is available for rent now. If you go to the And Then We Danced page on Letterboxd, there's a link there that takes you straight through to where you can rent it and stream it. I reckon we should go around the circle and talk about one feel-good thing we're recommending at the moment. Um, I'll start. For me, it's the Donald O'Connor Make Him Laugh dance sequence from the movie Singing in the Rain. Um, because my four-year-old is basically demanding I play it to him at least five times a day because it brings both of us so much joy. Just yeah. pure joy. Just ever, ever, ever. I love that movie. Yeah, and so so if we could go around the room and give a piece of advice for um, 
uplifting feel goodness over the next week. That would be mine. It's just watch Donald O'Connor <laughs> make him laugh mm. five times a day. Uh, watch Stop Making Sense, the Talking Heads concert oh, film, yeah. and just dance along with it. I will like go for a walk no, in my go. neighborhood yep. and just yep. have to stop myself from dancing to it, but I'll still let myself like just sing out loud and like air drum as I'm walking, just be like, they can <laughs> handle this. I'm not going to do the full moves that I want to do, but I can't not move in yeah. some way. It's just so joyful and loving and makes me feel good every single time I watch it. Ella, what's yours? I think about it very, very often because it just completely took me by surprise. And it was the shop around the corner, uh, the film from, I believe it's the 30s or maybe yeah. early 40s. And it's the 40s. And it's the original inspiration yeah. for was, You've Got Mail, yeah, right? I mean, I, it, it was playing at, um, yeah. at the Prince Charles Cinema uh, in London a couple of Christmases ago. And I went with a friend and it's just so unbelievably joyful. And I kind of think that I'd recommend that because what I'm actually recommending is 1940s Jimmy Stewart, because I just think that like no actor brings <laughs> me as much joy. Uh, I think he's so wonderful. Um, I'd also, I mean, I'd also recommend the Philadelphia story because you get to see him acting drunk and like, and his drunk hiccups yes. are just unlike anything I've seen. Just the best performance maybe ever. I don't know. Yeah. So Jimmy Stewart is my recommendation. Ella, Demi, thank you so much for coming on the Letterbox show. What an absolute treat. Thank, thank you. you. Thank that you both really so fun. much. This is perfect. This podcast is recorded in Los Angeles, London and Auckland and edited by Morgan Avery. You'll find the links for all the films and lists we mentioned in the podcast description. If you'd like to leave us a voice message for our next podcast, we're going to be talking about our favourite movies set in cities before the time of coronavirus. What big city films are you thinking of now that you can't leave the house? Hit the link in the description and tell us. You can find previous episodes of our podcast at letterbox.show. Thanks so much for listening. And as Sam Neill says, as long as we stay away from people, we're in a safe place. So stay safe, stay home, see you on the internet. Don't worry, I know what gets ketchup stains out. Hang on. Was it mustard? Mm, no. That's just made it worse. Does anyone know what works on ketchup?